1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his marvellous new book, Said the Prophet of God, Hadith Commentary Across a Millennium, Joel Blecker, Assistant Professor of History at George Washington University, engages with tremendous lucidity and brilliance the topic of Hadith commentaries in Muslim intellectual history across time and space. Traversing the pre-modern and modern periods in sites ranging from the Middle East to South Asia, this book presents in remarkable detail and with considerable nuance the intellectual, social and material stakes of the discipline and performance of the Hadith commentarial tradition. This book will be of great interest to students and scholars of Muslim intellectual history material religion, South Asian Islam, textuality and orality, and the Hadith tradition. Here now is my conversation with Professor Joel Plecker. Hello Joel, how are you doing?
0: Hi, how are you? Uh,
1: very good Joel, uh, thank you so much for your time, it's uh, such a pleasure going through this uh, uh, incredibly nuanced uh, book that uh, engages and brings together uh, intellectual and social history in such a profound and, and uh, effective fashion, so uh, look forward to this conversation Uh, Joel, we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Uh, Could you share a bit with our listeners uh, how you became a scholar of Islam and then perhaps how you got to write this particular book?
0: Oh, sure. Uh, So I, I came of age in the early 2000s. I was a musician living in West Philadelphia, which if you're familiar with it, you know it's one of the most eclectic and rapidly growing Muslim communities in the country. And uh, it, was a, it was an interesting time uh, to live there. I think my, uh, I, was, I was teaching uh, at the Center for Literacy. And I could see that my students, whether they were from East Africa or West Africa or South Asia or the Middle East, or whether they were African-Americans who grew up with Islam or converted to Islam, they all had this shared connection to Islamic history. And uh, I remember my friends and I used to go up to 52nd and Market, uh, on the weekends, looking for the latest bootleg or mixtape. And um, once we got there, we saw that all of these Islamic bookstores had set up shop selling uh, Quran recitations on CDs, uh, audio recordings of local imams, uh, sermons. They were selling Hadith texts in Arabic and Urdu and in English. They would sell the wooden toothbrush uh, the suwak that um, apparently Muhammad loved, he always loved to carry one in, uh, behind his ear, and they would sell scented oils and incense. And um, you could just see what a robust and, and complex um, community this, this uh, and what a, a complex living tradition this was. And if you recall in the early 2000s, it was also one of the darkest periods of the so-called war on terror. It was the age of 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and it felt like every day we were reading about new abuses, Guantanamo Bay or Abu Ghraib. And um, it wasn't just in the media or the public square um, where we saw this uh, great ignorance about Islam, but uh, also in the halls of the academy. Uh, My own College, which saw itself as a leading liberal arts kind of college in the country, didn't offer Arabic in the curriculum, which seems unusual now, but was very normal for that time. So um, this uh, this dissonance I mean between my own local life and my local community, and seeing the way in which this. Uh, rich and dynamic tradition was being simplified and caricatured and lampooned um, in the public discourse and uh, excluded from certain academic discourses uh, was uh, um, really related. I mean, I could really relate to it. I was uh, one of the only Jewish kids uh, at my school growing up in a small town in Northeast Ohio. And um, I I felt like uh, I could you know I, I could relate to what it what it meant to be to to feel to be made uh, to 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 feel different um, to have a funny name that was tough to pronounce. Um, but I also felt like um, I, I knew that my own tradition had been shaped by this uh, Islamic history. Uh, Maimonides wrote in Arabic after all um, and um, I, you know, had grown up reading a Semitic language from right to left. Um, so it, it really started just as an obsession uh, with studying Arabic uh, in those days. And eventually that obsession drove me to move to Syria in 2006 and 2007, where I was studying Arabic at the University of Damascus. and. Um, you know, I I think I was paying the rent (laughs) writing classical Arabic subtitles for Canadian music television shows and for Canadian cooking shows. And, uh, I got a little money doing part-time teaching. Um, I was teaching English to Palestinian refugees. Uh, and, um, and I met a few scholars while I was there that really opened up my eyes to, um, the Islamic scholarly tradition, and it seemed like each genre that we would study was just this expansive ocean that you could spend your whole life studying, um, Quran commentary, hadith, uh, Islamic law, Islamic history, literature. And um, so I think I applied to uh, graduate school from an internet cafe Damascus and uh, the fellow sitting next to me I think was playing online video games or something like that was uploading my application statement and um, and I was lucky to have been admitted Um, and to be perfectly honest I wasn't sure I was ready to come back I wanted to stay in Syria for as long as I could and I can't remember which one of my advisors uh, eventually convinced me, whether it was Qasem Zaman or Michael Cook or Sean Marman, but they said, look, you can come back. You can can come to Princeton, do your research, and in the winters and the summers, there's plenty of funding for you to go back to Damascus. And that's exactly what I did every winter, every summer that I could go. I went back, and uh, that's where I discovered uh, these live hadith commentary sessions for the first time that were attended by hundreds of students from all over the world, and um, I went back until I couldn't go anymore in, in 2011 when the turmoil began, and uh, what what was at first uh, an uprising and a revolution that later became a civil war, and in a way, you know, as 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 scholars and researchers we're also shaped by these uh, macro-historical events and these these wars. And in a way, um, not being able to go into Syria made me rethink, you know, how was I going to continue my research? And, um, and in a way, it was that time that really pushed me out of the Middle East and into India and into to South Asia. And I had a grant to go back to, to Damascus in the summer of 2011 that I rewrote to travel to Hyderabad. And um, I studied with a, a Hadith scholar, Sheikh al Hadith, uh, in, in the old city of Hyderabad, India, where they still speak Urdu. And that was another really formative moment for me because it it got me out of my Middle East centric framework and um, really opened new horizons and new perspectives for me in, um, in thinking about. Um, thinking about my work and thinking about the Islamic tradition more broadly. So um, so that's and those were the formative moments. Uh, my Jewish upbringing, ironically, my um, time living in West Philadelphia in the darkest periods of uh, the war on terror, moving to Syria and then um, traveling to India uh, in 2011.
1: Joel, I was wondering if you could begin by speaking a bit about the broader uh, concerns and argument of the book. And one of the things that I found most fascinating and uh, really one of the strongest points of the book is the way that it combines uh, intellectual and social history. And this is a point that you make repeatedly throughout the book, uh, which is that you really approach this whole genre of Hadith commentary uh, in a way that looks both at the material and social rewards of, of this genre of writing and and and, and performance, uh, but also the aspect of developing and cultivating a certain kind of excellence that connects scholars uh, to the prophetic past. And it's, you really combine these two um, uh, uh, understandings of how one can approach this field in really remarkable and interesting ways. So I was wondering if you could just speak broadly, uh, briefly about what is a the larger theoretical concern that animates this project and how you bring together uh, intellectual and social history uh, in this, in this project.
0: Sure. So I, I I mean, I can, I can talk about, I mean, the most pertinent example or, or one that might, might really um, relate to your listeners. Uh, You know, when I was in Damascus in 2009 and I discovered these uh, live Hadith commentary sessions, a commentator commenting on um, one of the, uh, most important uh, Hadith collections for Sunnis, um, he had been commenting on it line by line for seven years uh, at this mosque, which sat in the shadow of uh, the Ba'ath party headquarters in Damascus. And everybody widely assumed that it had been uh, under state surveillance. And, uh, you could always hear these coded political messages and political polemics in some of his commentaries. And uh, it would be easy for us as social and political historians to look at an event like this and and to see it just in these political and politicized terms. Now, the commentary session is actually just an instrument for politics. and. Um, or you know we could even look at the micro politics of this hadith commentary session and say, for instance, um, that uh, that the commentator was competing for his own prestige and reputation within um, the scholarly scene in Damascus. Uh, but if we just analyze it from that perspective, and I and I really think that that kind of analysis is important to do. But if we limited ourselves in that way, we would miss out on what made the hadith worth commenting on in the first place, and what was intellectually at stake for all of the students who had come uh, from as far away as Indonesia and Central Asia to hear this commentator explain Bukhari. So, um, so in that respect, you know what I what I tried to do in treating this tradition was not simply to reduce it to competition over social capital, or prestige, or honor, or um, material rewards, um, or political goals, but also to think about what was intellectually at stake, Uh, what were, you know, why why craft, you know, what, what does it mean to craft an excellent interpretation of a particular hadith? Um, what are what are the kinds of benefits, the religious benefits that are at stake when interpreting a hadith, and to try to tell the story in a in a kind of stereoscopic uh, with a with a kind of stereoscopic vision, thinking about both the material rewards, the social rewards that are at stake, but also um, what I call you know the the interpretive aims or the intellectual aims of the tradition.
1: Another major uh, strength of this book, uh, uh, Joel, is the way in which you connect these micro-narratives and stories to do with individual scholars and uh, uh, their journeys uh, with larger uh, questions uh, that are central to this project. Uh, I was wondering, uh, could you uh, share with our listeners uh, what was the Baji affair, which had to do with uh, the scholar Abul Walid al-Baji from the 11th century, uh, and how does the Baji Affair, in some ways, bring to view these larger uh, intellectual and material stakes that you've been talking about uh, in relation to uh, Hadith commentary?
0: Great. Yeah. So, I mean, this is uh, one of the earliest uh, accounts of a live Hadith commentary session that we have in the uh, 11th century Andalusia in a little port city called Denia, uh, on the um, uh, in the Western Mediterranean, um, and um, essentially uh, what Baji had done, he uh, he had gone to uh, Mecca and he had studied with some of these great Hadith scholars from Central Asia, uh, and he returned to Andalusia to transmit uh, all of these Hadith texts, including Sahih al-Bukhari, and he would have these commentary sessions where he explained the meaning of the hadith. And there was a hadith that um, suggested that uh, Muhammad. Uh, at this was the hadith at Hudaybiyah, where um, the uh, the early believers uh, and their opponents hammered out a treaty. And the question was whether or not Muhammad should sign his name, Muhammad the Prophet. Or whether he should sign his name, uh, Muhammad, the son of his father. And um, in that hadith, there's a phrase that says that uh, Muhammad got so he was he was so frustrated by this what what seemed like this uh, um, endless uh, arguing that uh, he got so frustrated he took the document and he. He wrote Muhammad uh, son of Abdullah, and this uh, apparently in one of these in one of the accounts of this uh, hadith commentary session that Baji was explaining this hadith, a student asked uh, did Muhammad write by hand or not, and Baji said, uh, "Of course. Do you not see it written in the hadith?" Muhammad took the document and he wrote. Uh, his name, Muhammad son of Abdullah. So, um, the reason that this was such a sticking point was that it, it really undermined the orthodoxy of this doctrine of Muhammad, the unlettered prophet, this Nabi ummi, as someone who, whose sincerity and, uh, in a way that the the, the sincerity of the Quran itself, or the authenticity of the Quran itself, was guaranteed by the fact that Muhammad hadn't read, or hadn't been able to read, any other text. So that that's the proof that he heard the Quran directly from God. So if he could write, then maybe he was literate. And um, so this whole debate really. Is spun out into a, um, uh, a much larger affair. Um, and, uh, apparently there were protests in the streets and there were popular preachers who were condemning Baji for, uh, giving this interpretation of a Hadith. And, um, it got to the ear of the Emir of Nainia, who actually had to send out letters asking for clarification on this issue. And, um, Ultimately, Baji um, ended up writing a, a, a volume defending his interpretation of this hadith, where he was able to claim, yes, Muhammad was unlettered at the time that he received the Quran, but he also wrote in this particular instance that those two things could be possible at the same time, and that both of those two things could be true at the same time, and people could disagree with him where they could agree with him. But that seemed to quell uh, the, uh, the loudest voices. But I think what that, what that shows is that these Hadith commentaries and the interpretation of Hadith is not just a derivative or marginal or solitary practice. That Hadith are interpreted socially in a community. And for a community, and uh, that there was a lot politically at stake for Baji. I mean, his own social survival, and I think there were some who were even calling that he be um, executed, or that it, this was a capital offense that he had been. He had interpreted the hadith in this way. But on the other hand, there was a lot intellectually riding on the interpretation of this hadith. So. Um, so again, I, I really hope that that drives home this point that um, as historians looking at this kind of material, if we just think about it in the abstract, what the intellectual debate was, or if we just look at the politics of the situation, we're missing out um, on an important piece of the puzzle. So I try to tell um, the story of this uh, affair Attending to both the intellectual stakes, but also the political stakes
1: the next uh, few chapters uh, Joel, you conduct some very interesting uh, analyses of these uh, rivalries between different uh, hadith commentators and what you show really is the way in which uh, This scholarly elite was also in uh, conversation with or you know was uh, uh, under the sponsorship of the political elite of different moments in history and you uh, recount some very interesting debates, such as uh, debates and rivalries happening in the Sultan's Garden, for example, uh, and this fascinating uh, episode that you narrate about uh, this uh, rivalry between uh, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani and uh, Badr al-Aini on the whole question of plagiarism and attribution, etc. So uh, what... Uh, made you focus on this question of rivalries? How is that connected to the larger argument that you uh, tried to make? And uh, perhaps you could uh, tell our listeners a bit about this rivalry or this uh, rather this uh, uh, con- controversy that uh, unfolded uh, between uh, Ibn Hajar and uh, Al Aini. So, uh, in a
0: way, this was the golden era of Hadith commentary, the age of Ibn Hajar al Asqalani, and Badr al Aini. They were both composing commentaries on Sahih Bukhari. At the same time, in different corners of Cairo, and apparently their students would go back and forth between their dictation sessions, and um, they would share notes with. Uh, apparently, one student who had attended Ibn Hajar's dictation session went to Aini and shared the notes that he had learned uh, from Ibn Hajar, and. Um, the reason why the rivalry is so important is because uh, a lot of Mamluk social history has been interested in uh, analyzing the way in which the ulama, uh, the individual actors or households amongst the ulama, were competing for social capital and prestige and reputation and. Uh, uh, judicial appointments and uh, generous stipends and um, and gifts and, and so on and um, so there's been a lot already written to to think about uh, to, to help us think about competition amongst scholars and to try to explain the activity of scholars as um, competition for the the sultan's favor or for an appointment uh, or honor or prestige and so on So, um, what I wanted to look at was again not to diminish the the important social and material stakes of these rivalries, but also to think seriously about what intellectually was at stake for these scholars. And um, we see for Ibn Hajar how the integrity of the commentary tradition was was at stake. I mean, when you Borrow without attribution, um, you uh, you you may <laughs> you may end up quoting something that's baseless or introducing something into the tradition that has a weak source or a weak provenance. And um, so he was he was very. Um, it wasn't just that he was competing with Aini for students and for um, for appointments. He was also um, really intellectually
1: invested uh, in uh, the arguments about how to interpret Hadith. Let's uh, shift the focus a bit, uh, Joel, in talking about your discussion of uh, Suyuti's uh, engagement with Hadith commentary. And thus far, you know, the commentators that you've been talking about adopted what you call a more encyclopedic approach uh, to hadith commentaries uh, but with Suyuti, you offer a very different kind of a paradigm a counter paradigm as you call it uh, in your book uh, with the practice of concision uh, rather than an encyclopedic uh, approach uh, could you tell us a bit about this practice of concision and how or what sort of a counter paradigm does it provide us in uh, hadith commentaries
0: Sure, so if we just studied these great uh, commentaries of Hajar and Aini and these were multi-volume works that took thirty or uh, more than thirty years to complete, um, we might come away thinking that all all commentaries were these rich uh, uh, and uh, encyclopedic uh, texts. And um, one of the things that you notice in, in studying this tradition is that actually, sometimes those texts are the exception rather than the rule and that uh, a lot of the texts that uh, were popular amongst readers were actually short summaries or short abridgments uh, that could very concisely uh, sum up the tradition for a general audience. And Slyupi, uh was one of those scholars who I think um really tried to perfect the art of concision. He did write a a very long commentary on Mawet's Muatta, which I think gave him some credibility and some credentials. But but he was the first to try to comment on every single uh, one of the uh, canonical collections of Hadith. And he would write these concise commentaries, and that was what he aimed for. He wanted them to be useful. He thought that these multi-volume commentaries that commented on every single word or phrase uh, were overdoing it. Uh, they were useless. They they couldn't engage the public and were of little benefit for that reason. So, um, so that was what he tried to do in his commentary. And I, I try to walk the reader through the ways in which he sometimes succeeded and sometimes failed, because there are certain hadith that uh, require longer interpretation and can be um, then can be delivered <laughs> in just a few lines. And you see, uh, you see the way in which he uh, he tries and sometimes f- fails to uh, to capture the meaning of a hadith uh, in in a, in a concise way.
1: Let's uh, move to uh, South Asia and your discussion of uh, the Hadith commentary tradition in early modern and and modern South Asia. And what you really show very convincingly in that section of your book is that Hadith commentary, among scholars from different ideological uh, and normative orientations, really becomes a medium through which they negotiate and mediate uh, the tentacles of colonial power and and the new conditions of colonial modernity. Uh, Could you speak a bit about... And you primarily focus on the works of the uh, scholars from the Deoband uh, school and the Ahli Hadith uh, movement uh, in late 19th uh, century India. Uh, Could you speak a bit about how uh, scholars from these two movements uh, engage with Hadith commentaries precisely to uh, restore or uh, assemble their authority in these new conditions of colonial modernity? And the fascinating example that you give um, here and also earlier in your book is that of the uh, discretionary punishment, the tazir uh, punishment. Uh, so, could you speak a bit about this aspect of uh, your argument uh, in relation to the South Asian context? Oh, sure.
0: So, this uh, again. I mean, this is this is uh, uh, you know the, the hadith commentary tradition. It's, it wasn't just arbitrary that I, 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 I took up India. Uh, I mean, the um, the tradition of hadith commentary in India was was very rich uh, following the Mamluk period. Uh, there was even uh, a Gujarati sultan who uh, <laughs> attempted to analyze hadith according to uh, certain chronicles. Um, so these uh, uh, these scholars amongst the Dioband and the Athli Hadith really saw their role as um, emulating these their their Mamluk era predecessors, and um, we see. Uh, the revival of long dictation and commentary sessions in schools and, and in madrasas in India, uh, and also the printing of uh, these multi volume hadith commentary works that are then circulated back into the Middle East. And um, the, uh, again, it would be easy to, to look at the proliferation of these commentaries and say, well, it was uh, merely an instrument. Uh, in which to challenge the um, the colonial predicament, or to challenge this uh, the um, the consequences of colonialism, uh, and of course uh, you do see that. I mean, in the text, actually, there are explicit mentions of British officials, uh, and there are these great anecdotes that that discuss all of the new modern technologies that arise uh, in this period. While scholars are commenting on these hadith, they're talking about uh, these kinds of issues. And yet, um, they also really cared about uh, the integrity of the Islamic legal tradition. And as you pointed out, this case that I look at, the case of Ta'zir, or discretionary punishment, was not just one that Muslim scholars cared about, but also British jurists. There was, in fact, a, a British uh, jurist who, you know, he, I, I think in one of his polemics uh, against Islamic law in India, he says. So the, the British public, uh, they, they, um, they're always um, so surprised to hear about uh, the stonings and the amputations from the hands and and those kinds of things. But the real the, what's really problematic about Islamic law is the uh, the amount of discretion that Muslim jurists have in um, meeting out uh, tazir um, uh, these these kinds of tazir punishments. And um, part of the reason, of course, is that um, the British really prized um, certainty and predictability. Uh, regardless of, uh, local or or regional context. And, um, and in a way what you see, I mean, this, this one of the scholars that I, but I look closely at on Barshall Kashmidi when he is uh, dealing with these Hadith that would seem to suggest that uh, discretionary punishment ought to be limited to 10 strokes or 10 lashings and no more. Um, he actually reads against the apparent meaning of that hadith and says, no, actually, Muslim judges have as much discretion as they want. So in that case, he's actually siding with the Hanafi legal school uh, over the what would what would seem to be the apparent meaning of the hadith. And yet, um, in the um, um, and yet, uh, you know, in, in the end, you also see that he's also worried about what lesson the general public might take away from, um, from that position. That they think that they could, um, you know, that, that if, if, uh, if a person thinks that they can take the law into their own hand, uh, and, uh, that would also be, uh, deeply problematic. So he says, uh, judges have wide discretion, um, but it has to be a qualified judge. It, just, it can't be just, uh, any Muslim, uh, you know, any Muslim's discretion. Uh, so, um, so you, you really do see the way in which, um, these, uh, these hadith commentaries um, really take on a new meaning in a radically different political context, and the way in which uh, scholars are thinking about uh, you know, what, what are, what's the meaning of these um, hadith with with uh, legal consequences in an era where um, Muslims are. Uh, removed, further removed from power than they had been in the past.
1: Now, Joel, you uh, title uh, the uh, uh, epilogue uh, to this book uh, "Islamism, ISIS, and the Politics of Interpretation." Uh, could you share with us a bit about what you try to do uh, in this epilogue?
0: Well, I think that um, you know, uh, uh, of course, it uh, will inevitably date the book to talk about the Islamic State in, in Iraq and and Sham. Uh, but I think that was part of the point that I was trying to make, which is that we all come to this tradition from a different, uh, from our, our different moment in time, our own political and social contexts. And um, for me, it was important to think about the ways in which Hadith commentary was not just something from the Muslim historical past, but was something that was Uh, being defined and redefined in our present. So the idea was to, uh, you know, everyone, you know, many observers who were looking at uh, the Islamic State's propaganda uh, would often talk about the way in which they interpreted the Qur'an uh, or the way in which they would talk about theology. But... um, uh, what i noticed was actually i mean this was in part because of their own genealogy as a as a salafi group that they were very interested in hadith and interpreting hadith and i noticed that these commentaries that i had studied ibn hajar's Fatal al for instance um, and nawawi's commentaries uh, on hadith and ibn rajab al-hanbali's commentaries on hadith these were Mamlukir commentaries were being cited in um, the Islamic State's propaganda. So I wanted to think about the ways in which the Islamic tradition, the classical Islamic tradition, of Hadith commentary was being um, brought, was being repurposed uh, by these kinds of groups, and, um, and to think a little bit about um, what that might teach us about uh, what that might teach us about um, the uh, current state of uh, uh, the, the ways in which these, our, our technologies um, and our current politics have been reshaping this commentary tradition in the present. And um, you learn, for instance, just how modern and um, hermeneutically flexible uh, the Islamic state propagandists are, um, in many ways they, um, they are represent a, a, a radical break from the Hadith commentary tradition. For instance, they don't use, um, their own names when they're giving opinions, which is very unusual. Um, and they speak very explicitly about the present and how the politics of the present influence the interpretation of the hadith whereas works uh, prior works would often try to speak to a a kind of uh, a timeless a kind of timelessness so that um the hadith could be the, so that their 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 hadith commentaries could be read across time Um, So, so, you know, for me, I was uh, really trying to uh, critically engage uh, these kinds of attacks and um, trying to put them in um, the context of this longer history of uh, Hadith commentary.
1: Uh, So Joel, as we're coming to the end of our uh, time here, uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, what might be the next project that you're thinking of doing? So I have a new project that I've
0: been working on and I'm calling it Prophet and Prophecy, P-R-O-F-I-T and uh, P-R-O-P-H-E-C-Y. And the idea is to think, um, it's in a way, it's, it's kind of a sequel to this book in the sense that I'm interested in the way the Islamic interpretive tradition um, is intertwined with its social, economic, uh, and political context. But I'm looking at um, the way in which uh, issues of trade and commerce were debated within this tradition, um, but resituating it uh, in the context of the spice trade. And um, the idea, the kind of uh, the inspiration there was just the fact that so many of the Hadith commentators I studied, like Hajar al-Asqalani, uh, were actually traders. They were um, uh, major wholesale traders. And so at the same time that they were delivering uh, fatwas on whether or not uh, certain customs tax on, on um On trade by sea was lawful or unlawful. They were uh, they were also heavily invested in um, in the spice trade. So I really wanted to think about um, that intersection between um, the uh, the intellectual
1: tradition and um, the uh, the economic and political context set the prophet of god hadith commentary across a millennium published by the university of california press and written of course by uh, professor joel blecker uh joel thank you so much uh, for your time today it was uh, lovely uh, talking to you uh, finally and uh, uh, thank you for providing us with such a fantastic book to wrestle with and to learn from so really appreciate your time thank you so this was my conversation with professor joel blecker about his wonderful new book, Said the Prophet of God. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sheer Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.